Good morning. Okay. So immediately after this class today, we're going to have a, um, we begin a four-part series on American Heretics, the film documentary. And I've already gotten from maybe five or six people questions about this film. If you can't come, is there a way that you can watch it later and all of that? And I don't know the answers to those questions. I will ask both Matt and Tim and have those answers before the time at 11 o'clock. We paid a, uh, it's a, it's a commercially available film that you cannot rent off of Netflix or Amazon Prime. I'm not even sure that you can buy it yet. But we contacted the film distributor and got a nonprofit license to show it in the restricted way that we are doing. We can't duplicate it and we can't put it on the website and things like that. So I'm sorry for the inconvenience that that might cause some of you. Just change your plans and stay. <laughs> um, so the, the, the plan is to uh, show the film in two parts. And then for the two Sundays after that, Matt Russell and I will dialogue with each other about the film and open it up for conversations and probably have some small group stuff and stuff like that about the film, okay? I, I hope you will um, stay to see it. And um, some of you know that um, a little over a year ago, in July of 2018, uh, a man uh, whom I credit with saving my life um, and who uh, over a 10-year period became my friend, Mark Hauskinek, was murdered here in Houston. And Mark was a beloved physician. And a group of people have gotten together and have created a memorial garden space at Houston Methodist Hospital down the street. And in the process of doing that, they've created a nonprofit organization so that if you would like to make a contribution to this, there are these cards that are on the back table that you can pick up and, and use. Um, a picture of Mark, which is um, brings back all sorts of memories. Um, when I was recovering from open heart surgery in the uh, recovery room, intensive care room, or whatever they call it, hell hole, um, <laughs> and, and really I've now written a piece that I give to people who are facing open heart surgery titled Things I Wish I Had Known or Wish My Doctor Had Told Me because physicians are frequently so busy and they are so occupied with this care and doing it excellently, superbly, that they don't, no, somebody in the system doesn't think to tell you, you need to take eye shades into the recovery room because they never turn off the lights, uh, things like that. Anyway, so I had this open heart surgery procedure, or minor thing, and um, when I woke up in the recovery room, Mark was sitting by my bed holding my hand. And I thought that made me special. <laughs> but he was that way with all his patients. So uh, if you'd like to do that, you, you can do that. It would be great. And I hope you stay for the, the film because it would be interesting to see what Matt and I do left unsupervised. Holly and I have decided we're going to teach again on the 24th of November, and you know about the men's gathering, which is going to be um, coming up next weekend. Somebody told me this week that they, they, don't, they don't attend personally to this class, but they live stream the class. As you know, this is not your grandmother's Sunday school class. And so... Um, there's not going to be a whole lot about Jesus in the Bible today, but what I do want to present is, I think, essential to understanding what is going to be coming down the road in um, beginning next, next Sunday. You remember last week I talked about two of what I think 
I call roadblocks on the path to enlightenment. And I call one of these cosmological dualism, uh, and, and the other I call individual salvation. And the philosopher from whom I took these terms is a man named Loyal Rue, who wrote a book a number of years ago of, uh, called Everybody's Story, Wising Up to the Epic of Evolution. It's a good book. But I recommend too many books, so maybe you will forget that one. Okay, now, <clears throat> because every person here in this room has by this time a long history of having a daily spiritual practice <laughs> where you, I don't know why that's funny, because it's true, right? Where you spend time opening up your headspace and your heart space Putting these two things on the table and implying that they are roadblocks on the path to spiritual awakening is probably not too upsetting for you. You know that already. But you are aware that much of organized religion's emphasis, especially since the Enlightenment, has been on keeping these two things firmly in place in organized religion, making sure that they stay there. And anything that anyone says that seeks to say otherwise is seen as disturbing to people. You should not talk about that sort of thing in church. So I want to be clear that I want to walk toward enlightenment with you with boldness and carefulness at the same time. I want you to find the times that we spend together in here, whether you're here physically via the magic of the internet, whether you listen on podcast or read these later, I want you to find these talks both comforting and full of consolation. Because so far I have not met anyone who is not dealing with some issue that makes them want to cry in their pillows at night. And if that is not true for you, just wait. <laughs> it will be. Almost 20 years ago, when um, I began to name fundamentalism as the clear danger it is, it was just fine for me to talk about the dangers of Islamic fundamentalism but when I moved on to talk about the eras in Christian fundamentalism, that was a different story. There is nothing, for example, that divides the church any more than um, views on the Bible. Some people see the Bible as a divinely inspired book. And then you have those people who see the Bible as a humanly constructed document that reflects a people's experience of the sacred over a long period of time. And if you mess with somebody's preciously held religious beliefs about anything, but especially about the Bible, it's to risk great wrath. Though I had read the works of Marcus Bohr, John Dominic Crossan, Shelby Spong, and many others for years, it wasn't until just a little over 15 years ago that I actually got involved in the work of the Jesus Seminar. And uh, I can remember vividly the Sunday that after one of the worship services in the cathedral across the plaza, uh, somebody said to me on the way out of the church, well, I'll see you next Sunday. And I said, well, I won't be here. I'm going to attend a Jesus Seminar event. And this person stopped and said, really? Aren't you afraid that will disturb your faith? I didn't say so at the time, but I think that it's the, the primary purpose of spiritual work to disturb us. Uh, yes, I want to comfort and I want to console, but, and I said this in the very first talk I gave when Ordinary Life began. Some of you remember it. I said that I want to leave you with molasses on one hand and feathers in the other. And what I meant by that was that I wanted to raise issues in here that made it um, virtually impossible to avoid having to think and to raise questions. Also, back in the beginning of Ordinary Life, I invented a piece 
that I bring out from time to time that fits this very topic. And it goes like this. If you're disturbed by what happens in this class, that's good. It's good in spiritual practice to be disturbed. The goal is to be disturbed as long as we can be disturbed. When you're not disturbed, it is only because you are not disturbed. It is not because nothing is disturbing. <laughs> of course, because everything is always the way it ought to be, because the system operates perfectly, nothing is really inherently disturbing. Of course, as long as we can't be disturbed, we can't know that. So, if we want to wake up, we want to continue to be disturbed and pay very close attention to being disturbed for as long as we are disturbed because nothing is really disturbing. <laughs> and I said, now, if you laugh about that, if you understand that and laugh about that, this is the class for you. <laughs> and um, if you didn't understand it and you didn't laugh at it, this is still the class as you for you, but you might not have as much fun as the other people who, who left about So it is in this sense that I want to be provocative. And I want to take time today to elaborate on these two roadblocks and our getting past them because I think that's essential for us in order to be able to play the game of spiritual uh, beings and, and religion at a different level. That's my goal for this So to get through the roadblock of cosmological dualism means knowing, and I don't mean just knowing about, but experientially knowing that the true function of religion is not just to serve as an evacuation plan from this world. Or more accurately, I, I would say um, there is another world so you don't have to be anxious about there not being one. And it is this one. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is spread out all around you and you don't see it. So what empowers and enables us to be able to see? In the Bible, in the book of Genesis, you have a, a creation story. Actually, there are two, but we'll ignore that for a moment. Um, this part of Genesis, first 11 chapters of Genesis, was likely written sometime in the 500 years before the birth of Christ. It's probably written in Babylon and uh, because the J Jews who came up with the story um, were in captivity, they were not in Jerusalem, and they were growing up in a culture where a couple things needed to happen. They needed to separate themselves to maintain their identity, and that's why you have all the weird rules in the book of Leviticus, and they needed another story about where they came from. They went to school with uh, children in Babylon, where the, the public schools back then I'm making this up, you know. <laughs> they lived in a culture where there was a story about creation. And, and the, the, the story, uh, the Babylonian story of creation went like this. The whole created order was created from the dismembered corpse of a goddess named Tiamat. And Tiamat's skull had been split by her youngest son, Marduk, and by murdering his evil mother, Marduk brought order out of chaos in this act of redemptive violence. Well, the Hebrews didn't want their children to grow up with that story, so they developed another story. And um, it was a story about a good creation that was made by a good God. It was not written as scientific factual treaties, never intended to be taken for that, but it was a story about what these people believed was true about them and where they had come from. And the story captures what we're now seeing. There was a time back before the Enlightenment when science and religion were just two different ways of being curious about the same thing. And what is emerging now is a story that tells us 
that there was a time when all places were one place and all things were one thing. What overcoming cosmological dualism implies is a willingness to embrace this fact that all appearances to the contrary, the universe is now as it was in the beginning. All places are one place, all times are one time, and all things are the same thing. Okay? You don't have to agree with this. Just let it sit in there for a while. Maybe you'll make it somewhere else. Mark Twain said, time is just a way to keep everything from having, happening at once. Now, I think that though it is a great challenge to organize religion, cosmological dualism is going to go away. Um, because we human beings base our understanding of the world on the prevailing views of the physical universe, right? Physics grounds everything. And when there's a change in physics, everything that is built on physics begins to change. Math architecture, science, art, and then the softer sciences. But you get a change in physics, and you get a change in everything that's built on top of that. Does that make sense? Okay. Organized religion is the last to embrace this kind of change. Most of the way our society institutions uh, that house us reflect the understanding of the world, though, are changing. And when our, our view of physics changes, everything is up for grabs. I bet most people are not aware that 500 years before Jesus, the Greeks had already figured out that we did not live in a three-storied universe. But Rome was so busy conquering the universe that it didn't have time for this and the Christianity people were so busy focused on the next world that they thought it didn't matter. So after the Dark Ages descended on the earth, the church irreparably damaged its reputation by putting so the so-called science that you find in the Bible above the insights and discoveries of people like Copernicus and Galileo. They took that mythic story of creation and said it's true. It's literally, scientifically true. And there are people to this day, maybe neighbors of yours, who believe this. The King James translation of the Bible, published 1611, contained a note to readers that creation occurred on the evening before the 23rd of October in the year 4004 B.C., Two years later, the Roman Catholic Church banned all books that suggested the earth moved at all. But you can't hold back the dawn. This new physics thing is coming out. Flaring forth is one of the phrases. And, 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 and the game that the new physics is introducing us to uh, is introducing us to a radical change in how we conceive the world. It's not imperative that we embrace it. It is inevitable that we embrace it. It's just going to happen. Fifty years from now, we'll come back and we'll see this, this has happened. Like Elvis, cosmological dualism has left the building or is leaving the building. Now, I cannot say the same thing for what goes under the title of individual salvation, even though these two things are related. There is a taboo in our culture that says that no one should say anything that might be interpreted negatively about the individual self. And you will find some resistance in your own heart to what I'm about to say. But just notice that. Because nobody likes to be told they don't exist. (laughs) 
I mean, you can understand, if it is religion's sole purpose to get you to heaven after you die and there's no you to get there, <laughs> that's a problem for religion right there. And, and uh, in addition to this, every indication is that uh, not only is the sense of isolation growing in our culture, but also the disorder that we call narcissism is considered epidemic. Um, I'm going to put that even more strongly. We are culturally addicted to the notion of a separate self. Now, alienated individuals do come together to form tribes, but the social psychologists that I am reading say that tribalism does not overcome the fact that the individuals in that tribe still feel separated, cut off from one another. And we have all these wonderful psychological tools at our disposal, and yet there seems to be this conspiracy. Uh, I don't even think it's an unconscious one for people to be led to ignore who we are. So I want to tell you, nonetheless, there is a spiritual law that is as solid as any law in physics, and it is this. We are one. The belief, even the sensation, that we are separate cells enclosed in human bodies is a hallucination. And we are in an urgent need of a sense of our true identity. And what is called the new cosmology has all the tools we need to appropriate this. So just to turn your thinking upside down, we humans don't come into this world. We come out of it. An apple tree apples apples. The planet peoples people. You don't come in it, they know where to go when you leave it. We return to it. Jesus, and I'll have a lot more to say about him and his relevancy for us in the next uh, weeks ahead. Jesus knew this. Jesus did not speak about the kingdom of God. That's a mistake to think that he spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke from the kingdom of God in what he said and what he did. For him, it was a reality that he came from, not that we had to get to. That's a big shift because I grew up in a religious tradition where heaven was a place you went to, tried to get to. And then in, in a more generous orthodoxy, you think about the kingdom of God as something you have to create instead of realize. Now, one of the consequences of seeing ourselves as separate selves who come into the world and have another world we hope to go to um, is that we have been taught to see the world and other people on it as hostile to us. We talk about conquering nature rather than learning how to live in harmony with what is. We say or we hear that we are going to conquer space without realizing that we are already way out in space right now. Another result of this notion that we're separate from each other and live in an alien universe is that we have no way of making sense of what happens on the earth in a way that we all commonly agree on. It's just my opinion versus yours. And therefore, the most aggressive and powerful among us, read most violent, they make the decisions and run the show. Okay? By the way, I think one of the re reasons that people are turning away from religion and toward science today is because uh, science isn't divisive. Religions are, for the most part, quarrelsome. Religions are about divisions, the saved versus the not saved, true believers versus the heretics. Even religious liberals can play the game of, well, I'm more tolerant than you are. 
I, I quoted Alan Watson here a few weeks ago, and I, I want to quote him again because uh, this is important to where I hope we can go. Alan Watts says, irrevocable, irrevocable commitment to any religion is not only intellectual suicide, it is positive unfaith because it closes the mind to any new vision of the world. Faith is, above all, an openness, an act of trust to the unknown. Get that. Faith is an act of openness, an act of trust in the unknown. And I know you, we all do, experience ourselves as separate selves. But Thich Nhat Hanh helped me begin to see decades ago through his notion of interbeing, that there's not, at least in this cosmos, even the possibility of a separate self. Just like you cannot have a wave without the ocean. You're a wave in the ocean. It rises and falls away. Now, people's anxiety goes up when they hear this, but... So here's a little hint about the way this game goes. Spiritual work is about learning how to see through the illusion of the ego. And, and I want to tell you that if you put in hours and hours, even much longer, um, into this, and you come out on the other side feeling better about yourself, you didn't get it. If you feel somehow that separates you from those who don't do this work, you didn't get it. Part of the problem of learning to see through the illusion of the ego is that, that we, don't have a, we don't have a language for this. I've read that Eskimos have at least five words for different kinds of snow. And that's because they live with it. And they need to be able to talk about it that way. In the Aztec language, there is, or was, but one word for both snow, rain, and hail. So we don't have a language to say what I'm trying to say. And another aspect of the problem of learning to see through the illusion of the separate self is that there's nothing in our culture that encourages this. The religion of the culture, consumerism, is built on a firmly established separate self to, so that we can buy products. When I was a child, <clears throat> there was a magazine that came into our home every week called Life Magazine. I devoured it. And not long after, and my parents, thank God, took a, magazines and, and encouraged reading. And thank God I grew up in a time before television and had English teacher mother. Um, I, I read that magazine, and then after a while, we got a magazine called Time Magazine. And I read that. It was a news magazine that came out. And I'm beginning to notice over the years how Time Magazine's articles begin to shift a little bit. And I do not know, I tried to remember while working on this talk how this happened, but early uh, in the late 60s or early 70s in Houston, I somehow became part of a focus group that Time Magazine put together because they were thinking about bringing out another magazine, and this would be called People. And then... There is a magazine called Self and a magazine called You. You get to trend, right? We're going from life and time to self and you. That's a culture. And there's, that's the culture in which we live. Now, I think there are two factors that I believe it's helpful to bring into our awareness and, and our ignorance of them is why we keep falling for the lie of the separate self. Um, or to put it another way, when we don't stay mindful of the two things I want to introduce, we, we don't experience the truth of what Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father are one and so are you. You can't have a separate self and believe that too. 
And the way that Jim Finley teaches this is, I am not God, but I'm not other than God either. I'm not you. I'm not other than you either. Right? So the first of these things is our failing to realize and embrace that the things we think are polar opposites, light, dark, conservative, liberal, solid in space, inside, outside, cause and effect, they're all part of the same thing. You get rid of one, you can't have the other. Now, again, we don't have a language for this. We have symbols. Uh, Yin-yang is a symbol of it. And you can't have yin-yang and cut it in two and still have the same symbol. And, and the second thing is that we have been taught and have come to believe that the way we see the world is the way the world is. And that our sensation of seeing makes us as real as we think the thing is that we are seeing. That makes sense? So we, we seldom see things as a, as a, a big whole, as a, as a whole. And as a matter of fact, in our most intimate arguments with people about things that matter to us, we wonder, why can't you see things like I do? Because no one can. Again, I turn to something I learned years ago from Thich Nhat Hanh. We see a vase of beautiful flowers on the dining room table, and we don't see them in their wholeness. We don't see them as they progress from beautiful flowers to dying flowers to flowers in the garbage can under the kitchen sink to flowers on the compost heap outside behind the garage to fertilizer that goes on the next generation of flowers that produce the flowers that grow to become beautiful flowers on the dining room table. It's all one piece. It's like we, we um, play the game of black and white, dark light, winning, losing, life, death, so forth. It's like we want to keep the mountains without the valleys. Now, the starkest way I can say this is probably not the most comforting but it is, if we get rid of the two roadblocks of cosmological dualism and individual salvation, the truest. And here is today's talk in a summary. There is really nothing to hold on to, and there's really no one to do the holding. It's fun. Now you embrace this just for a second or two, and it'll open a door for faith for you. We don't do the holding. We are safely held. My firm belief, this is not in my notes, my firm belief is that <clears throat> the sacred mystery, divine presence, whatever word you want to use it, that called all this into existence protects us from absolutely nothing. And at the same time sustains us in absolutely everything. And this is what opens the door to that kind of faith. And we, we open the door. We go into an enchanted world. That's a world brought into being by chance. Get that? That's the meaning of that word. We go into an amazing world. That is a world that's full of mazes. <laughs> Enchant. Chant. Mazement. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn with wonderful lyrics. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy to heaven, to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let it be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. 
changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before the lost in wonder, love, and praise. Folks, that's a poem. It's not fact. It's a poem. It's a symbol. Now, once we've seen this, we can begin to relax into the free flowing energy that life is. And, and, and we're free to return to the world where we actually live out our lives, but we do so in a new spirit, hopefully like Jesus. We, we've seen that the universe is a, a fabulous game to be played and that there's no separate you to get something out of it. We just do it. We play it. People come to class and they say, I want to get something out of it. Okay. Here it is. Take that. Get that thing. So go back in light of what I'm saying and read any of the parables of Jesus. Any of them. Any of the parables of Jesus fit this. We are not in charge. The rules of the game are not our rules. We don't make it up. We're not in control. Life is full of surprises and, and reversals and things turned upside down that we could not have anticipated. It's a wonderful game to play. So what we're learning from this is that we're not just watching something happen. We're part of something that's happening. We're part of an evolutionary process right now. I believe that's what draws us here to this place on Sunday mornings. We know that we haven't become, but are on our way. And when we can move through the roadblocks of cosmological dualism and individual salvation, where we mistake thinking that escape from this world is what matters, then we're set free to see a bigger, infinitely more beautiful, compassionate love story that can capture our hearts in, with in, extraordinary happiness. Okay, now I'm going to be using, as we go forward, the life and teachings of Jesus as a guide. Um, and the re there are a lot of reasons for this. I'll enumerate on some of them next Sunday. But, but the reason for this is, uh, one of them is that this is the way I see Jesus played the game. And, and I want to take a serious relook at what it might mean to follow Jesus in this, in this way. Um, I, I believe this is what Paul had in mind when he said, have this mind in you which is in Christ Jesus, or the way Peterson renders it. Think, think, think of yourselves the, the way Jesus thought of himself. And, and again, I want to walk carefully here. There are some people who, if you mess with Jesus, react more strongly than if you'd said something nasty about their mother. On the other hand, there are people, some of them in this space, who have been so burned by the Jesus thing, they want nothing to do with it. Jesus talk is a huge turnoff for them. They tried all the things they were taught about Jesus. They accepted Jesus into their hearts. They hoped it would give them blessed assurance and promise of heavenly bliss, and none of that worked for them. Besides, they have seen what some people have done in the name of Jesus, and it makes them sick. So next week, I'm going to be talking uh, about my current understanding of Jesus and the relevance of Jesus for us now. And again, we need to get through these roadblocks and deal with the impediments of, of uh, misseeing ourselves, misseeing the world, misseeing the nature of the game. Um, I think Jesus may not only make more sense to us if we can do this, but we can embrace both him and his teachings in a way that will contribute to our ongoing spiritual growth and our making a difference in the world. So I'm going to call this theme of talks as we go forward, Reclaiming Jesus, which is something I got from a document that I'm going to give to you. So would you make sure that this side gets half of these and this side gets half of these? Uh, could I have one. That's okay. I have one. I have one. That's good. I'm not going to talk about this uh, much today, but I want you to have it. 
And when you get yours, oh, first thing I want to encourage you to do is turn to the third page of it, to the back, to the, to be the last page, and look at this paragraph at the bottom. And you got one? You will see that Father Richard Rohr signed this document. Will Williman signed this document. A lot of other people. Did you all get one? Did you get one? Oh, we need more for this row right here. Here, come over there. You will also see that there is a, a good mix of uh, African-American and, and male and female on this list. And, and uh, for those of you who wonder where in the world is organized religion, on some of the critical issues of our time, this would be an example of where there are signs of hope. I said a few weeks ago that where you're going to see things coming from institutional religion about signs of hope, it will be from what I call the para-church organizations. It won't be coming from the Methodist denomination or the Presbyterian denomination, but from the Center for Action and contemplation. It will be coming from a sojourner's organization. Everybody have one? No, we're still on this side. Got some people? You're getting them over there. Now, this is the long version of this document. If you go on to reclaimingjesus.org, you can get a PDF of a short version. And I will put that on the website so that um, you can have it. I would like for you to um, just add this to part of your, your daily spiritual practice, to read it and to contemplate on it, think about it, because we will be dealing with aspects of it as we go forward. You will notice one of the things about the document is that it's broken into pairs of statements. We believe, therefore we reject. We believe, therefore we reject. We believe, therefore we reject. It's a claim, a plea for, for social action. And you notice that the topics that are dealt with are pretty hot. They are uh, racism, Gender equality, um, use of language, misogyny, truth speaking, authoritarian leadership, nationalism. So I'm using this to stimulate discussion. But mostly, I, I'm, I'm using it to, uh, because I want, want foundational to be in the talks going forward, the questions of Jesus. Remember, we've been talking about the questions of Jesus. One question, who do you say that I am? And the other, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? So, what does it mean to call ourselves Christian? What does it mean for us to say that we follow Jesus? Just wanted you to think about that. Questions about cosmological dualism or the separate self? The easy to answer. I also said earlier that one of my goals in teaching is just to ask you to open your minds when you come in here. Just set your beliefs aside momentarily. When you leave, you can put them all back in and then close your minds again. If that's what you want to do, you can do that. <laughs> 
But while your minds are open, I've got this sneaky goal of wanting to warp the hinge a little bit so it doesn't close as tightly as it did. back. What does it mean to live in an evolving world? What does it mean? I mean, evolution affects everything. I mean, it always seemed crazy to me that people could deny evolution as a reality because evolution is taking place in your body right this minute and doing things that you have no aware control over. I mean, you don't think to make your heart beat or wounds on your skin to heal or your food to digest. The church is not an antique shop. It's not a museum. Whatever else can be said about Jesus, we have to stand back and admit that he had a radical new vision for a radical new world. And... and um, what might it be like for us to step into that vision? That's all I'm raising. Now, Richard Rohr, one of the signers of this document that I've given you, has wondered out loud whether the church has not dug its hole that it, it, it not dug itself into a hole that it cannot get itself out of. And what he means by that is that for centuries now, being a Christian has been about belonging to a particular group and believing certain things. And sometimes I'll get into conversations with people outside of here, and, and this would be a surprise to you, but um, I can behave like kind of a smart aleck. And uh, so I've been people outside of here ask me, what do you do? I say, about what? <laughs> Or they'll say something, and it inevitably comes up, the religion, spirituality thing. And sometimes I will ask people about their religion, and I will say, are you a Christian? And people will say, yes, I'm a believer. And I don't do it, but I want to, I so want to say, um, in what? What does that mean? And Why? How does that play out in your life to say, I'm a believer? I'd be willing to bet that if the truth were told, it has something to do with cosmological dualism and separate self. So I want to wonder in a serious fashion, what would it mean if Jesus were a model for living rather than an object of belief? What hopes and dreams did Jesus really have for this world? And what would it mean for us to truly respond to his invitation to follow him? <clears throat> I was thinking uh, after this talk was written and and um, process of coming here today, um, I've taught ordinary life for a long time and mind and spirit for 10 years before that. I've done a lot of teaching about Jesus, a lot of teaching about Jesus. I've taught uh, about the Jesus of history, the, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Um, I've taught series on the Beatitudes and the parables and uh, did a little series on the Gospel of Thomas. It took two years. And... Um, I've done a lot of teaching about Jesus. This is going to be different. And it takes some of that into consideration, but um, it's something that I personally want to come clear and clean about before I die. And um, I want to, I want to, I'm grateful for the privilege of being able to do it in, in front of you. When I was in seminary, um, we studied a guy named Albert Schweitzer. And Albert Schweitzer was one of the true polymaths of our globe. Um, a polymath is somebody who is a genius in several different areas all at the same time. And Schweitzer was a musician. He was a philosopher. Uh, he was a doctor. He was a missionary. 
he was a theologian, and we studied Schweitzer because he was the head of the second, what's called the second quest for the historical Jesus. And um, I'm not going into what Schweitzer said about that at the moment, but uh, Schweitzer won the, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1952 because of his philosophy on the reverence for life. Um, he, he spent the declining years of his life as a missionary doing medical work in uh, Africa, and one of the patients that uh, he operated on uh, asked him, why are you doing this? And Swatcher said, Jesus sent me. And he was no stupid man. There were some words of Schweitzer's that captured me at the time I was in seminary, so I wrote them out, and I keep them in that book that I referred, mentioned to you, and I get out from time to time to, to look at, and I want to share them with you. Schweitzer said, he comes to us, meaning Jesus, as one unknown, without a name, as of old, by the lakeside. He came to those men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same words, follow thou me, and sets us to the task which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship, and as an ineffable mystery they shall learn in their own experience who he is. That's the question he asked, right? Who do you say that I am? That's the journey I seek for us to undertake. So let's see where it leads. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I hope that you can stay for the film that follows immediately. Thank you.